0: Exodus 19. So one of the greatest challenges as a pastor consistently is to come up with a sermon introduction. I will uh, say this is, uh, this is not a challenge this Sunday. I've never been prayed for in that way uh, as we begin uh, a sermon. So that takes care of my introduction for me. Thanks, A.J. Really uh, delighted that you're with us, and hopefully this is going to form the center of the sermons for the rest of the year, as we'll uh, interview next week uh, Rhett and Shannon Burns as they're in Turkey on the Black Sea coast of Turkey, doing some great work there. We're going to consistently keep the nations before you as we talk about what it looks like to fill the earth. And Exodus 19 will serve as our text this morning. Pick up where we left off uh, from last week. If my calculations are correct this morning, today marks my 12,732nd day of life. Some of you are doing the mental calculations in your head. I'm 34, all right, so I, th- I think I'm close. If I did the multiplication correctly, some of you have me doubled up. Some of you are far short of that. And in the midst of those 12,732 days of life, there are some days that are vastly more memorable than other days. I mean, of course, there, there are some that are memorable for their pettiness, something just stuck in your brain. Like, I I remember the day uh, Stephen Rutland and I were carrying a prop from Somersault out to the truck, and he made his first joke that he was going to marry Christina. I remember exactly where I was. He said he wasn't going to play the friend card yet. That's Rutland speak for I'm going to ask that girl out on a date, all right? (laughs) I uh, I remember exactly where I was in South Dakota carrying a spoiled refrigerator. Uh, on an Indian reservation with some of you as we cleaned out a boys and girls club from a fire. I remember playing par 3 golf with my buddy Garrett Stewart and talking about life as he finished up his high school. I rem- those, those memories get etched in your mind. And there are some of those that are minor. There are some of those that in each of our stories are much more macro level. Like there are certain days or certain seasons that come to shape and define all of life. I can still almost, it's almost palatable, the ride in my Ford Ranger pickup truck from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, back to Raleigh, North Carolina, spring break of 1999, when God saved me in that little Ford Ranger pickup truck driving all by myself. I can still remember what it felt like to have the windows down and riding and Talking out loud to God and processing with the gospel and the work that I felt him doing in my life. There's certain moments like that that get etched in the psyche of a person. And the same is true with a people. As we turn our attention to the people of God in the scriptures, we have this record of God's dealings with the Israelites. Many of the days of God's dealing with the Israelites are not even mentioned. Some are mentioned in minor stories that appear in nothing but a sentence or two. And then there are certain scenes. There are certain scenes in the nation of Israel that, that etch in and they come to define a people. They shape a nation. And they serve as foundational for our understanding of God's redemptive plan in all the world, we know these stories are central because of the repetition that we see in Scripture. Sometimes the authors will pick up and point back to some central text over and over and over again. We've already looked at a couple such stories. I mean, it's hard to discount the role that the creation narrative plays in defining a people. From the text in Genesis 1, we see that God created image bearing worshipers. And he placed them on a good world that he had made, and he gave them the task of filling the earth with other image-bearing worshipers. We saw last week, as we skipped the rock quite briskly, that the fall marred all this. In fact, it changed the nature of the people's filling of the earth. Instead of filling the earth with image-bearing worshipers, what happened is that the people filled the earth with fallen and depraved sin. We see this as a result of God's judgment of the people in the flood and even his stark condemnation and scattering of the people at Babel. That God continues to act to disperse people and in his judgment he also demonstrates great grace. We saw beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 as the creation and fall narrative unfolds for us that God, in Genesis 3, promised a seed, one who was to come, who would destroy the effects of sin, and he gave a plan that sin would somehow be covered by the blood sacrifice of another. As sin continues to spread, God's redemptive mission kicks into full gear, in many ways beginning with Abram the text that we looked at that was foundational, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that really serves as the great commission in the Old Testament. God chooses a man, Abram, a husband of a barren wife in a faraway land, who God shows that through him a seed would come that would fulfill his promise. God calls Abraham to go from that land to a new land, and in so doing, God would bless the nations. And through his presence... And ultimately, through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. What we saw last week, I hope, was a paradigm for all of God's missions in and through all of God's people. That in God's dealing in the world, he chooses people, a wonderful privilege, and he chooses to entrust them with a mission, a cosmic responsibility. That the knowledge of God is meant to be a self-replicating gene to be transmitted to others. Those who receive the gift of salvation are transformed into people who are privileged to pass it on. Paul understands this in the New Testament as he writes to the Roman church that his mission in Romans 1-5 is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. There you see everything. A personal call, Paul, for the sake of the glory of God's name, resulting in faith and obedience just like Abram among all the nations. However, the people of God are consistently tempted to shirk this responsibility and thus choose another plan of attack. Another cosmic nation-shaping scene happens at the beginning of the book of Exodus. We see that the people, the seed of Abram, are not faithfully filling the earth with worshipers, but instead they're a small ethnic minority enslaved in Egypt. The opening 12 chapters of the book of Exodus serve for us of the story of the formation of this nation. From this point forward, every time a small child would ask of God's faithfulness to his people, older generations would point back to the Exodus story. We see and know that God came through for his people because of what he does in the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus. Many of us know this story like the back of our hand growing up, seeing it played out on flannel graph boards and books and movies. God sends Moses to deliver the people and the plagues to free them and the refrain consistently as he does this with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He sealed their miraculous deliverance by the crossing of the Red Sea Exodus 15, the Song of Miriam, serves to bookend this story as the people proclaim the majesty and goodness of God. And then in chapters 16 and through 18 of Exodus, we see the provision of God in manna and some organizational how-to by Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. Here's how you're going to lead these people on mission. God proves that he has not forgotten his people with the Exodus. And then we come to our text for today. God has a large nation gathered at the foot of the promised mountain. Only three months earlier, these very people had been slaves, and they were now liberated. It's now time for them to hear from God as a people. What would God say? What was he doing in and through their redemption? And this scene for us will form the nation and our next understanding of what it means to fill the earth. The text tells us in chapter 19, verse 3, Moses went up to God, was on the mountain, and the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. You, you yourself see. God reminds them of something that I think is a bit hard to forget, right? It's not as if you're going to quickly, in three months span of time, forget the to of the story. He holds it up before them again and says, See, this is what I did for you. I bore you up on eagles' wings, and I brought you out. Surely you know that I am God. He reminds them of this here at the outset, and he's going to have to do it over and over and over and over again through the Old Testament. See, I redeemed you. And throughout the the narrative of the Exodus, we see that God would do this so that Israel would know that he is God. Deuteronomy 4:34. Moses' collection of sermons, he delivers right prior to his death, or has any god ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord did for you, in Egypt before your eyes to to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him this little package is a statement that God makes over and over and over again in the old testament that you might know that he is God and there is no other this was a central motive for the exodus story that Israel would know that he Is God, and incidentally, that they would not only know, but that they would worship Him as such. God's central point in the Exodus was not simply liberating slaves, but it was reclaiming worshipers. God's not intent simply on liberating slaves, but He's calling a people to Himself who would rightly respond. In worship, the Hebrew basis, in fact, for the word slavery and worship, are exactly the same. We hear, see here that God is calling them out of slavery and calling them into another form of slavery. Paul picks up on this imagery: slavery to worship the one true God. And so we see the first of four central affirmations I want to make this morning for you from this text. The first is this: that God in his kindness makes himself known to a people. That God, in his kindness, makes himself known to a people. This is the point of the Exodus story, that you would see what I did for you, and I brought you to myself, so that you would know that the Lord is God, and there is no other. And yet, this is that is a point that we would say, yep, I understand that. The second is a bit easier, a bit less easy to see. Verse 5 begins this way. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. On one end, I'm going to tell you something, help us see who God is, and on the back end, speak these words to the people. And in the middle is the text that I want us to zero in on this morning. It provides for us, in beautiful structure, the central reality of why God was forming a people to himself. The nature and the arrangement of the text, long before there were multiple exclamation marks, bold, and 12 smiley faces. The writers of the scriptures had to find other ways to emphasize that which is important. We see in the text, I've laid it out for you, in its original chiastic structure, which simply means that it builds to a point. uh, Psalm 8 will do this for us. Begins, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How does it end? O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And the middle drives to the point, the crescendo of why God's name is majestic in all the earth. We see here this same refrain for us, these parallel lines in the middle, and this is where I want your eyes to zero in first, is the parallel tracks that God says, this is who this is for. It's going to be among all the peoples, and then he repeats and in fact affirms his authority over all the earth is mine. God, in calling a people to himself, does not do it solely for their own interest, but so that they would display his glory among all the peoples over which he is the rightful ruler. This is the subtle subplot of all of the Exodus story, is there is more in view than simply the nation of Israel, but the nations are in view. You can think at the base of this mountain, it would be easier for the Israelites to think, this deal is really about me. God delivered me, He brought me out, He's giving me a land. God is really looking out for number one, He's looking out for me. And from this panoramic on the top of the mountain, we see God expand Moses' eyes to the nations. You can almost imagine the scene. God saying, Not so fast, brother. Here is a panoramic of God's global purposes for all the people. And if you read back through the narrative of the Exodus, you'll see this around numerous turns. We take uh, the plague of the flies in Exodus 8. As the words are being recounted, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people will dwell, so that no swarms of flies will will be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of all the earth. The plagues of hail do the same thing in Exodus 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and your servants and all your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Or looking back in Joshua 4, verse 23 and 24, the Lord God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Not only is Israel in view in the plagues, but all of the watching nations are in view. God says, I am doing this so that you will know that I am God, and in turn, so that all the nations will know. In fact, he had a specific purpose for Egypt in the story of the Exodus. He wants to be known and worshipped among them. In fact, many theologians that will say the plagues were specifically chosen as a victory over the perceived gods of the nations. That everything that they worshipped, God said, I'm stronger than. You think the sun is God? I'll just black it out. He overturned the gods of the nations to show the nations that he is the real God. And he wants to be known. Why? Because the whole earth is God's. And he is worthy of the worship of all peoples from every people group on the planet. Alright, so second, second affirmation. God makes himself known to a people so that he will be known among all peoples. God in his kindness makes himself known to a people. Secondly, God makes himself known to a people so that he will be known among all peoples. Among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now look back at your text. Verse 5. Parallel tracks, again, will help us. He says, verse 5, Now if you obey my voice, keep my covenant. You shall be a treasure possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's going to give them here three nation-defining realities nation-defining realities. Don't miss this, because this is g- going to crescendo and have direct import to your life in just a minute. It gives them three nation-defining realities that aren't simply true for the people of God. They're true for us as well. He says you are a treasured possession. The language here is used in royal context to describe the personal treasure of a monarch and his family. So let's take First Chronicles, the instructions of the building of the temple. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. Because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of God. So amongst all the treasure, there's specific treasure that the king says is my possession, and I give it. Or Ecclesiastes 2.8. I also... The writer of Ecclesiastes said, gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers both men and women, many concubines, the delight of sons of man. So he says, I got my own personal treasure. Same word there. Certainly the king would have a whole property. All all of the land was his and all the people were his, but he had his own personal treasure. And in that personal treasure, he took specific pride and joy. This is mine. God is saying, the whole earth is certainly mine. I'm the rightful king and ruler of it all, all, but you will be my treasured possession, my king's treasure. A people of my own choosing, marked by the knowledge and the dwelling of God. And this was to so define the people that all the nations would look and say, what's going on with them? Deuteronomy 4, 5 says it this way, See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples, who, when they hear of all your statutes, will say, Surely this is a great nation or this great nation is wise and understanding people for what great nation is there that has a god so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him and what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today so the idea the framing of the law is such that the nations would look in and say, oh, so that's what God's people are supposed to look like. That all the giving of the law, all the instructions in the Old Testament are given with a missionary basis. They are to provoke the curiosity of the watching world. It says, you're going to be a treasure possession. I'm going to entrust you with the nearness of God, with the law and the decree of God, so that the nations would see you are a special people. Second reality, they are a kingdom of priests. They had a role that matched their status. They are a treasured possession, and as a treasured possession, they were to be a kingdom of priests. Two essential functions of the priest. Don't have time to delve into them in detail now, but simply they were to represent the people to God through sacrifices and represent God to the people through the declaration of his word. They, rep- they stood in a mediatorial role between God and the people. A representative role. And God says, this is how you are to be in view of the watching nations. That you serve in a mediator- mediatorial fashion such that what I entrust to you, you are instructed to take to the nations. That they are to see and know. And then lastly a holy nation. If the kingdom of priests zeroes in on our representative task, the holy nation identity marker marks the distinctness of the people of God, that they are to be a separate people. One writer uses this imagery that I think is really helpful, that the nation of Israel is to be a shop window For the nations to see what it looks like for God to transform a people. So in their distinctive living, their obedience to the commands of Christ, they live in such a way that the nations would have a view into a shop window, as it were, to see and know what God is doing amongst a people. And this really forms the basis of the Old Testament commission. I mean, something happens at Pentecost, where the commission of the Old Testament, that was more, you stay put and let the nations come and see what God is doing amongst the people, that clearly Jesus says, now you go. That the giving of the Spirit, embodied in people, sends us out with an external mission. Okay? The calling of the people of God in the Old Testament, the placing of His dwelling in the temple, they were to stay put in many ways. Now, living with clear external commands, like leaving the edge of their field unharvested so the nations could glean from that, but they were to stay put in the land that God has given them and live as a holy and distinct people there such that the nations would see. This is what God's doing amongst the people. Leviticus 18 further emphasizes this point the lord spoke to moses saying speak to the people of israel and say to them i am the lord your god you shall not do as they do in the land of egypt where you lived and you shall not do as they do in the land of canaan which i am bringing you. you shall not walk in their statutes you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them i am the lord your god you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules if a person does them he shall live by them i am the lord clearly see that God wants to be known, and he's doing it both so that the Israelites can see and know that he is God, but also the watching nations can. Now this, for us, let's pause for a minute by way of application to say this is an exceedingly high-risk strategy for God. I mean, God, in many ways, in choosing to take on a people, is binding his reputation to the reputation of these people. God, in choosing a people, and in saying you're going to be a shop window where we, the nations, will see what happens when God transforms the people, his identity gets bound up in the obedience of the people. And this is going to frame for us the discussion of judgment next week. It's going to be a thrilling sermon. We're going to talk about judgment. It's going to be awesome. Um, Come back. Bring your friends. But this seems to be what God's doing in judging in the exile, right? He's saying, you are profaning my name in the land I gave you, therefore i got to kick you out. You can't wear my name in that land and not be a shop window by which the people can see what God is like. This is a high-risk strategy because what the people think of Israel will translate to what they think about God. Please don't miss that reality. What the people think about Israel will have direct import to what the people think about God. Think about many of us that are fathers now. And the reality that for many of us, there was much unlearning in reference to God as father because of the associations we had with that word, with our father of upbringing. That God is in some ways very much like our fathers and in some ways drastically different. You begin to make associations about God based on people. Right? This would be true of God's work among the nations. Christopher Wright, who wrote a marvelous book that unfortunately is not accessible um, to most. It's quite beastly. Uh, Beastly means big. Okay? Just translation. It's really big. Um, And hard words um, for me. So he writes in that book about this point of God's electing a people. says this, the so-called scandal of particularity, that means God's choosing of a specific people, was scandalous to the Almighty before it was ever a problem for the rest of us. Yet it was a risk, a scandal, and a potentially massive embarrassment that God was prepared to endure for the sake of his ultimate mission for the whole of humanity with a wider purpose and view, and here he quotes Hebrews 11, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Hmm. So, third reality, God forms a people to display his glory among the nations. That God forms a people, by that we're doing the good southern y'all here, a people who would display his glory among nations. All the nations. And then lastly, the lead-in clause. Beginning of verse five. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. All right, so we gotta we gotta do something with that text. Because we've got God calling and choosing a people we 've got the cosmic scope of redemption that is among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. We get this. God has given them an identity and a task, a treasure of possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. But this if" in verse five is really critical. there's a couple of ways you can a couple of things you can do with this if. if you're just reading it in your English translation, the temptation would be to read the text this way, like, if could mean, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then I will make you a treasured possession and a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So if you do this, then I will do this. So these identity markers get placed on you as a result of your obedience to my voice and to the keeping of my commands. That's the natural way to read it, and that's the way that most, that's the church culture that most of us grew up in. And if you're here and you're not a believer this morning, I would guess that's the version of Christianity you've most been exposed to. We see the Old Testament as law and the New Testament as grace. God's saying if you do these things, if you just clean up your act, if you get it together, then few of us doubt that God's got some really good things that he'll do for people that are pretty good. Israel, if you'll just clean it up, get it together, then I will do this. The problem with that is the Bible. Salvation has always been grace through faith. Grace precedes law at every turn in the Scriptures. Grace doesn't enter the equation in the New Testament, but rather grace is the basis on which God called Abram to himself, and grace is the basis on which God has chosen the nation of Israel. These realities, I will argue, are already true of the people. They are already a treasured possession. God has proven that through the Exodus. Exodus. They didn't clean up their act in Exodus and say, God, we got it all together, come get us. He chose them and he delivered them. They're already a kingdom of priests, like it or not. They are already tasked and instructed, in fact, to be holy because God has already declared them as such. So, I believe if, in this passage, would better be rendered this way. Rather than, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then I will make you a treasure of possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Rather, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will display the fact that you already are a treasure possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. You see the flip there? This is not a means by which you earn those statuses, but rather obedience forms the link by which Those realities are demonstrated to the world. And in this way, election, I think we get, yeah, 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 election, God's identity and his calling of a people, ultimate result, a display of God's glory among the nations, that obedience, keeping of the commands, submitting to the voice of the Lord, forms for us the essential thread that binds our election to the watching nations says i've already done this for you and through your obedience you display the fact that i am worthy of all worship christopher wright in the same book writes this obedience to the covenant was not a condition of their salvation but a condition of their mission that's really good obedience to the covenant was not a condition of their salvation but it was a condition of their mission that the motivation for obedience is the watching nations. So he says, do this, keep my commands, because the nations are watching, and I'm worthy of their worship and glory. So my last reality from this text is this. The display of God's glory among the nations is most vividly seen and demonstrated through the obedience of his people that the display of God's glory among the nations is most vividly demonstrated, and we could nuance this a hundred different ways, through the transformed lives of God's people. And here, in stunning fashion, we're going to see in the New Testament, Peter applied this same reality to those who are in Christ. Notice the text that will be on the screen behind me from First Peter. In this fabulous passage in First Peter 2, Notice, I mean, the language is eerily familiar, right? It says, this is true of you in Christ. You are a people of God's possession, chosen by God, according to Ephesians 1. A priest. This is why we don't need priests. We already have one, and his name's Jesus. Kingdom of priests. Your mediator is Christ, and you're a holy people, distinct Marked out and separate. These are realities that are true of the people of God by nature of their salvation. You're declared holy. You're declared holy. It's not something that you earned. You're declared chosen by God. You're a declared priest. This for us explodes, in my mind, the southern nasal gazing approach to obedience that approaches obedience, if I just do better, if I just get my act together, I'd be better off. God would like me more. If I just showed up at church, read the Bible a little bit more, and stopped those really annoying sin habits that all Southern Christians think are really, really bad, if I just stopped and cleaned up those things, like, God God would kind of check me off on the list. I want to encourage you this morning that in contrast to a nasal-gazing obedience, we would be a people that had a nation-gazing obedience. A type of obedience that is driven by a desire for God's glory to be seen and revealed among all the nations. And here's where this impacts us. We've done the entire sermon with very little application until the end. I think a desire, an obedience driven by the nations, by a desire for God's glory to be seen and revealed amongst all peoples, both here and around the world fuels, one, it fuels our personal sanctification. Or maybe we could say, it, say the inverse. That a lack of nation-gazing obedience undercuts a passion for missions around every turn. Missions and obedience go together. That having a connection with what God is doing in and through my life amongst all the peoples, that actually fuels me to want to obey God. Not so I check it off my list, but because there's something cosmic in view. I mean, this fuels my passion. It's hard to think about the nations when I'm living a life of overt disobedience to God. I mean, it's hard to live like a missionary on Monday in your workplace, right? If your marriage is falling apart at home, it's really hard to have any passion and intensity for what God's doing, even on your Monday morning workplace deal, much less what God's doing in India. This is the reason that most of our 18 to 22-year-old college men are impotent in their missionary living, because they have lurking, dark pockets of sin that keep them hunkered in a corner and unwilling to engage in the mission of God because they're afraid, what would people think if they found out? A life of obedience fueled by the mission actually helps me think through the day-to-day decisions that I make. It actually fuels my understanding of time. It informs practical daily life decisions. I would encourage you to think, church, about the amount of time that we all spend in both the sinful and the trivial areas of life. I mean, apart from thinking that areas of sin that we engage in are are overtly an offense before a sovereign God, just think about the sheer volume of time you spend doing them. Or take just a trivial matter. The obligatory track down the YouTube hunt, when you click on one video, that leads to another video, that leads to another video, and they may not be overtly sinful, but think about the massive time drain that leaks out of your life every single day. In fact, I would argue that the digital addiction that we all have takes us away from meaningful conversations about God's work around the nation's. And our life leaks out in five minute increments. That things as simple as the amount of time you spend Facebook hunting have direct import to what God is doing among the nations. You squander amazing opportunities. And think about your fruitfulness. I mean, isn't it hard to expect a blessing from God when you're living in known areas of sin? Think about the amount of time you've prayed, God, bless this project that I'm doing, bless this leadership challenge, when you know you're not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. When you know the secret pockets of sin that are hovering around the corner. I can't help but think there's some connection to a lack of fruitfulness overall from the church in the United States because of our known disobedience and just comfort in it. Obedience fuels fruitfulness. And so it provides a fuel for our personal sanctification, but it actually also provides a fuel for our corporate sanctification. Now, here's where it's going to be easy for us to get ourselves in trouble. Because we are going to attempt around TCC to do something that um, may be a bit uncommon. I'm not sure around the nations it's probably not. AJ would certainly agree with that. I mean, we think we have one church that we're doing well, 940 But a desire to see God's glory among the nations is going to mean that a lot of you need to leave. That if I'm looking at the same church three years from now, something's wrong. Okay? And what this should do for us is give, is incite us with a desperate passion for, other, for things that have historically just been check marks on the things that a church is supposed to do. Like, take growth, for example. We're going to need you to invite your friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates because a lot of our church is going to leave. And they're going to go plan other churches. And if you guys are not living as missionaries in the context that God's placed you, we're going to be sitting on an empty sanctuary because I'm going to send everybody out. Okay? But the names that are on this list are going to be scattered among the nations, and we're going to refill this with people that right now are from the harvest. They don't know Jesus. And so you don't need to live as a missionary so that you can kind of check it off your box. and Like, well, our church is already like 80% full. There's nowhere for anybody to sit. Well, that's getting ready to change. We'll give you somewhere for people to sit. you got, you got to live You got to live like a missionary. Or think about the issue of giving, right? I mean, historically, that's just like some Christians are supposed to do. It's supposed to give. To my church. Multiplication, corporate multiplication requires resources. So this morning we put uh, on the back tables, I think they're here in the front, also our proposal for the 2014 budget that involves significant missionary giving from our church, both to the cooperative program, the pool of Southern Baptist resources to various international mission opportunities, as well as to beginning to fund our own church planting efforts. We're going to give a significant amount of money to David and Trevor to begin the church at Greer Station from the giving of this church. And we're not going to do it just once. We're going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. We're going to quickly have leaders in our context that are going to be sent within 18 to 24 months, and so I need you to give, not simply so we can have better stuff around here, but so that we can plant churches here in Washington, D.C. in 2015, in Salt Lake City in 2016, around the nation. It's like, that's what we want to be about. So you need to give so that the church can multiply. Or think about this one. This This is a good one. Think about the issue of leadership. Like, it's typical pastor banter. Say, I pastor a church where 20% 20 of the people do 80% of the work, right? We've all been in churches like that. There's kind of this subtle subculture that it's just okay for 80% of the people, just kind of coast, to assume a leadership position vastly below their spiritual calling. Sit on the pews, do what you want to do, and you've already got 20% of the people running all the programs, so we really don't need you. This will not be true at TCC, because a rapid multiplication will mean that we are going to quickly call you out of the cheap seats and get you in the game. We need to multiply small group leaders quickly, not haphazardly, but we don't need small groups of 40 to 50 people. Biblical community can't happen in that context. And for that reason, you've been walking with Jesus for a decade. You need to be in the game, taking the spiritual responsibility for a group of 12 to 15 people to shepherd them to holiness. That's your responsibility, and it's mine too. Okay? I'm not calling you out in a world that I'm not willing to get in. We need you all to step into the game. We're going to take these band and these music leaders, and we're going to scatter them. We're going to fling them to other churches, and we're going to cry, and we're going to miss them, but we're going to need other people to take their spots. We're going to do the same with our kids' ministry and in every other ministry of the church that we're going to make it very uncomfortable for you to be passive. And I think, a decade from now I may prove myself wrong, but I think a lack of that is the reason for the majority of the stagnation in southeastern churches in the U.S. They just get comfortable. And there's no nation-gazing perspective that prompts them out of comfort to anything else. You're successful if you're a church like we are this morning. I think success is measured by whether the nations know that we exist. And that's what 1 Peter tells us, that all the nations may see the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, last question. Does your life proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Does your life proclaim that? Not are you a Christian, but does your life proclaim that? For some of you this morning, that means you need to take the step of faith to say, God is pursuing me, and I need to trust in the finished work of Christ. I need to talk to somebody about how I can be a Christian. I invite you to find one of the pastors here at TCC. We would love to introduce you to a God who longs to be known. For many of you, though, this morning, it means relinquishing and repenting of the false idols that render you missionally impotent, laying those aside and flinging yourself upon obedience for Christ's sake with the nations in view. I invite you this morning as we close and sing to take some time to prayerfully repent. Not so God likes you again, but because he already does. And so that we could be used by God among all the nations. Let's pray. Father, would you use this stillness and this moment to force us to turn a mirror into our hearts, to see the ways that you are calling us out to a life of obedience. But you give us the grace to repent where needed, to take steps of faith where they're necessary in all of our lives. Would you be so kind as to multiply the influence of this church among the nations? We ask that for the sake of Christ.